Chapter Forty Nine B of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Forty Nine B. Ancient Deities of Vegetation as Animals. 4. Osiris, the Pig, and the Bull In ancient Egypt, within historical times, the pig occupied the same dubious position as in Syria and Palestine, though at first sight its uncleanness is more prominent than its sanctity. The Egyptians are generally said by Greek writers to have abhorred the pig as a foul and loathsome animal. If a man so much as touched a pig in passing, he stepped into the river, with all his clothes on, to wash off the taint. To drink pig's milk was believed to cause leprosy to the drinker. Swineherds, though natives of Egypt, were forbidden to enter any temple, and they were the only men who were thus excluded. No one would give his daughter in marriage to a swineherd, or marry a swineherd's daughter. The swineherds married amongst themselves. Yet once a year the Egyptians sacrificed pigs to the moon and to Osiris, and not only sacrificed them, but ate of their flesh, though on any other day of the year they would neither sacrifice them nor taste of their flesh. Those who were too poor to offer a pig on this day baked cakes of dough and offered them instead. This can hardly be explained except by the supposition that the pig was a sacred animal which was eaten sacramentally by his worshippers once a year. The view that in Egypt the pig was sacred is borne out by the very facts which, to moderns, might seem to prove the contrary. Thus the Egyptians thought, as we have seen, that to drink pig's milk produced leprosy but exactly analogous views are held by savages about the animals and plants which they deem most sacred. Thus, in the island of Wetar, between New Guinea and Celebes, people believe themselves to be variously descended from wild pigs, serpents, crocodiles, turtles, dogs, and eels. A man may not eat an animal of the kind from which he is descended. If he does so, he will become a leper, and go mad. Amongst the Omaha Indians of North America, men whose totem is the elk believe that if they ate the flesh of the male elk, they would break out in boils and white spots in different parts of their bodies. In the same tribe, men whose totem is the red maize think that if they ate red maize, they would have running sores all round their mouths. The bush negroes of Suriname, who practice totemism, believe that if they ate the capiai, an animal like a pig, it would give them leprosy. Perhaps the capiai is one of their totems. The Syrians in antiquity, who esteemed fish sacred, thought that if they ate fish, their bodies would break out in ulcers, and their feet and stomach would swell up. The Chassas of Orissa believed that if they were to injure their totemic animal, they would be attacked by leprosy, and their line would die out. These examples prove that the eating of a sacred animal is often believed to produce leprosy or other skin diseases. So far, therefore, they support the view that the pig must have been sacred in Egypt, 
since the effect of drinking its milk was believed to be leprosy. Again, the rule that, after touching a pig, a man had to wash himself and his clothes, also favours the view of the sanctity of the pig, for it is a common belief that the effect of contact with a sacred object must be removed, by washing or otherwise, before a man is free to mingle with his fellows. Thus the Jews wash their hands after reading the sacred scriptures. Before coming forth from the tabernacle after the sin-offering, the high priest had to wash himself and put off the garments which he had worn in the holy place. It was a rule of Greek ritual that in offering an expiatory sacrifice, the sacrificer should not touch the sacrifice, and that after the offering was made, he must wash his body and his clothes in a river or spring before he could enter a city or his own house. The Polynesians felt strongly the need of ridding themselves of the sacred contagion, if it may be so called, which they caught by touching sacred objects. Various ceremonies were performed for the purpose of removing this contagion. We have seen, for example, how in Tonga a man who happened to touch a sacred chief, or anything personally belonging to him, had to perform a certain ceremony before he could feed himself with his hands. Otherwise it was believed that he would swell up and die, or at least be afflicted with scrofula or some other disease. We have seen, too, what fatal effects are supposed to follow, and do actually follow, from contact with a sacred object in New Zealand. In short, primitive man believes that what is sacred is dangerous. It is pervaded by a sort of electrical sanctity, which communicates a shock to, even if it does not kill, whatever comes in contact with it. Hence the savage is unwilling to touch, or even to see, that which he deems peculiarly holy. The Betuanas of the crocodile clan think it hateful and unlucky to meet or see a crocodile. The sight is thought to cause inflammation of the eyes. Yet the crocodile is their most sacred object. They call it their father, swear by it, and celebrate it in their festivals. The goat is the sacred animal of the Madinasana Bushman. Yet to look upon it would be to render the man for the time impure, as well as to cause him undefined uneasiness. The elk clan, among the Omaha Indians, believe that even to touch the male elk would be followed by an eruption of boils and white spots on the body. Members of the reptile clan in the same tribe think that if one of them touches or smells a snake, it will make his hair white. In Samoa, people whose god was a butterfly believed that if they caught a butterfly, it would strike them dead. Again, in Samoa, the reddish seared leaves of the banana tree were commonly used as plates for handing food, but if any member of the wild pigeon family had used banana leaves for this purpose, it was supposed that he would suffer from rheumatic swellings or an eruption all over the body like chickenpox. The Mori clan of the Pills in central India worship the peacock as their totem and make offerings of grain to it, yet members of the clan believe that were they even to set foot on the tracks of a peacock they would afterwards suffer from some disease, and if a woman sees a peacock, she must veil her face and look away. Thus the primitive mind seems to conceive of holiness as a sort of dangerous virus, which a prudent man will shun as far as possible, 
and of which, if he should chance to be infected by it, he will carefully disinfect himself by some form of ceremonial purification. In the light of these parallels, the beliefs and customs of the Egyptians touching the pig are probably to be explained as based on an opinion of the extreme sanctity rather than of the extreme uncleanness of the animal, or rather, to put it more correctly, they imply that the animal was looked on not simply as a filthy and disgusting creature, but as a being endowed with high supernatural powers, and that as such it was regarded with that primitive sentiment of religious awe and fear in which the feelings of reverence and abhorrence are almost equally blended. The ancients themselves seem to have been aware that there was another side to the horror with which swine seemed to inspire the Egyptians. For the Greek astronomer and mathematician Eudoxus, who resided fourteen months in Egypt and conversed with the priests, was of opinion that the Egyptians spared the pig not out of abhorrence, but from a regard to its utility in agriculture. For, according to him, when the Nile had subsided, herds of swine were turned loose over the fields to tread the seed down into the moist earth. But when a being is thus the object of mixed and implicitly contradictory feelings, he may be said to occupy a position of unstable equilibrium. In course of time, one of the contradictory feelings is likely to prevail over the other, and according as the feeling which finally predominates is that of reverence or abhorrence, the being who is the object of it will rise into a god or sink into a devil. The latter, on the whole, was the fate of the pig in Egypt. For in historical times, the fear and horror of the pig seem certainly to have outweighed the reverence and worship of which he may once have been the subject, and of which, even in his fallen state, he never quite lost trace. He came to be looked on as an embodiment of Set or Typhon, the Egyptian devil and enemy of Osiris. For it was in the shape of a black pig, that Typhon injured the eye of the god Horus, who burnt him and instituted the sacrifice of the pig, the sun-god Ra having declared the beast abominable. Again, the story that Typhon was hunting a boar when he discovered and mangled the body of Osiris, and that this was the reason why pigs were sacrificed once a year, is clearly a modernised version of an older story that Osiris, like Adonis and Attis, was slain or mangled by a boar, or by Typhon in the form of a boar. Thus the annual sacrifice of a pig to Osiris might naturally be interpreted as vengeance inflicted on the hostile animal that had slain or mangled the god. But in the first place, when an animal is thus killed as a solemn sacrifice once and once only in the year, it generally or always means that the animal is divine that he is spared and respected the rest of the year as a god, and slain, when he is slain, also in the character of a god. In the second place, the examples of Dionysus and Demeter, if not of Attis and Adonis, have taught us that the animal which is sacrificed to a god on the ground that he is the god's enemy, may have been, and probably was, originally the god himself. Therefore, the annual sacrifice of a pig to Osiris, coupled with the alleged hostility of the animal to the god, tends to show, first, that originally the pig was a god, 
and second, that he was Osiris. At a later age, when Osiris became anthropomorphic, and his original relation to the pig had been forgotten, the animal was first distinguished from him, and afterwards opposed as an enemy to him by mythologists, who could think of no reason for killing a beast in connection with the worship of a god, except that the beast was the god's enemy. Or, as Plutarch puts it, not that which is dear to the gods, but that which is the contrary, is fit to be sacrificed. At this later stage, the havoc which a wild boar notoriously makes amongst the corn would supply a plausible reason for regarding him as the foe of the corn spirit, though, originally, if I am right, the very freedom with which the boar ranged at will through the corn led people to identify him with the corn spirit, to whom he was afterwards opposed as an enemy. The view which identifies the pig with Osiris derives not a little support from the sacrifice of pigs to him on the very day on which, according to tradition, Osiris himself was killed, for thus the killing of the pig was the annual representation of the killing of Osiris, just as the throwing of the pigs into the caverns at the Thesmophoria was an annual representation of the descent of Persephone into the lower world, and both customs are parallel to the Egyptian practice of killing a goat, cock, and so forth at harvest as a representative of the corn spirit. Again, the theory that the pig, originally Osiris himself, afterwards came to be regarded as an embodiment of his enemy, Typhon, is supported by the similar relation of red-haired men and red oxen to Typhon. For in regard to the red-haired men who were burnt and whose ashes were scattered with winnowing fans, we have seen fair grounds for believing that originally, like the red-haired puppies killed at Rome in spring, they were representatives of the corn spirit himself, that is, of Osiris, and were slain for the express purpose of making the corn turn red or golden. Yet at a later time these men were explained to be representatives, not of Osiris, but of his enemy Typhon, and the killing of them was regarded as an act of vengeance inflicted on the enemy of the god. Similarly, the red oxen sacrificed by the Egyptians were said to be offered on the ground of their resemblance to Typhon, though it is more likely that originally they were slain on the ground of their resemblance to the corn spirit Osiris. We have seen that the ox is a common representative of the corn spirit, and is slain as such on the harvest field. Osiris was regularly identified with the bull Apis of Memphis and the bull Mnevis of Heliopolis, but it is hard to say whether these bulls were embodiments of him as the corn spirit, as the red oxen appear to have been, or whether they were not in origin entirely distinct deities who came to be fused with Osiris at a later time. The universality of worship of these two bulls seems to put them on a different footing from the ordinary sacred animals whose worships were purely local. But whatever the original relation of Apis to Osiris may have been, there is one fact about the former which ought not to be passed over in a disquisition on the custom of killing a god. Although the bull Apis was worshipped as a god with much pomp and profound reverence, he was not suffered to live beyond a certain length of time, which was prescribed by the sacred books, and on expiry of which he was drowned in a holy spring. 
The limit, according to Plutarch, was twenty-five years, but it cannot always have been enforced, for the tombs of the Apis bulls have been discovered in modern times and from the inscriptions on them it appears that in the twenty-second dynasty two of the holy steers lived more than twenty-six years. 5. Virbius and the horse. We are now in a position to hazard a conjecture as to the meaning of the tradition that Virbius, the first of the divine kings of the wood at Aricia, had been killed in the character of Hippolytus by horses. Having found first that spirits of the corn are not infrequently represented in the form of horses, and second, that the animal which in later legends is said to have injured the god was sometimes originally the god himself, we may conjecture that the horses by which Virbius or Hippolytus was said to have been slain were really embodiments of him as a deity of vegetation. The myth that he had been killed by horses was probably invented to explain certain features in his worship, amongst others the custom of excluding horses from his sacred grove. For myth changes while custom remains constant. Men continue to do what their fathers did before them, though the reasons on which their fathers acted have been long forgotten. The history of religion is a long attempt to reconcile old custom with new reason to find a sound theory for an absurd practice. In the case before us, we may be sure that the myth is more modern than the custom, and by no means represents the original reason for excluding horses from the grove. From their exclusion, it might be inferred that horses could not be the sacred animals or embodiments of the god of the grove, but the inference would be rash. The goat was at one time a sacred animal or embodiment of Athena, as may be inferred from the practice of representing the goddess clad in a goatskin, Aegis. Yet the goat was neither sacrificed to her as a rule, nor allowed to enter her great sanctuary, the Acropolis at Athens. The reason alleged for this was that the goat injured the olive, the sacred tree of Athena. So far, therefore, the relation of the goat to Athena is parallel to the relation of the horse to Virbius, both animals being excluded from the sanctuary on the ground of injury done by them to the god. But from Varro we learn that there was an exception to the rule which excluded the goat from the Acropolis. Once a year, he says, the goat was driven on to the Acropolis for a necessary sacrifice. Now, as has been remarked before, when an animal is sacrificed once, and once only in the year, it is probably slain, not as a victim offered to the god, but as a representative of the god himself. Therefore, we may infer that if a goat was sacrificed on the Acropolis once a year, it was sacrificed in the character of Athena herself and it may be conjectured that the skin of the sacrificed animal was placed on the statue of the goddess and formed the Aegis, which would thus be renewed annually. Similarly, at Thebes in Egypt, rams were sacred and were not sacrificed. But on one day in the year a ram was killed, and its skin was placed on the statue of the god Ammon. Now, if we knew the ritual of the Arician grove better, we might find that the rule of excluding horses from it, like the rule of excluding goats from the Acropolis at Athens, was subject to an annual exception, 
a horse being once a year taken into the grove and sacrificed as an embodiment of the god Virbius. By the usual misunderstanding, the horse thus killed would come in time to be regarded as an enemy offered up in sacrifice to the god whom he had injured, like the pig which was sacrificed to Demeter and Osiris, or the goat which was sacrificed to Dionysus and possibly to Athena. It is so easy for a writer to record a rule without noticing an exception that we need not wonder at finding the rule of the Arician grove recorded without any mention of an exception such as I suppose. If we had only had the statements of Athenaeus and Pliny, we should have known only the rule which forbade the sacrifice of goats to Athena and excluded them from the Acropolis, without being aware of the important exception which the fortunate preservation of Varro's work has revealed to us. The conjecture that once a year a horse may have been sacrificed in the Arician grove, as a representative of the deity of the grove, derives some support from the similar sacrifice of a horse which took place once a year at Rome. On the 15th of October in each year a chariot race was run on the field of Mars, Stabbed with a spear, the right-hand horse of the victorious team was then sacrificed to Mars for the purpose of ensuring good crops, and its head was cut off and adorned with a string of loaves. Thereupon the inhabitants of two wards, the Sacred Way and the Sabara, contended with each other who should get the head. If the people of the Sacred Way got it, they fastened it to a wall of the king's house. If the people of the Sabara got it, they fastened it to the Mamilian Tower. The horse's tail was cut off and carried to the king's house with such speed that the blood dripped on the hearth of the house. Further, it appears that the blood of the horse was caught and preserved till the 21st of April, when the Vestal Virgins mixed it with the blood of the unborn calves which had been sacrificed six days before. The mixture was then distributed to shepherds, and used by them for fumigating their flocks. In this ceremony, the decoration of the horse's head with a string of loaves, and the alleged object of the sacrifice, namely to procure a good harvest, seems to indicate that the horse was killed as one of those animal representatives of the corn spirit, of which we have found so many examples. The custom of cutting off the horse's tail is like the African custom of cutting off the tails of the oxen and sacrificing them to obtain a good crop. In both the Roman and the African custom, the animal apparently stands for the corn spirit and its fructifying power is supposed to reside especially in its tail. The latter idea occurs, as we have seen, in European folklore. Again, the practice of fumigating the cattle in spring with the blood of the horse may be compared with the practice of giving the old wife, the maiden, or the clayak sheaf, as fodder to the horses in spring, or the cattle at Christmas, and giving the yule boar to the ploughing oxen or horses to eat in spring. All these usages aim at ensuring the blessing of the corn spirit on the homestead and its inmates, and storing it up for another year. The Roman sacrifice of the October horse, as it was called, carries us back to the early days when the Sabura, afterwards a low and squalid quarter of the great metropolis, was still a separate village, 
whose inhabitants engaged in a friendly contest on the harvest-field with their neighbours of Rome, then a little rural town. The field of Mars, on which the ceremony took place, lay beside the Tiber, and formed part of the king's domain down to the abolition of the monarchy. For tradition ran that at the time when the last of the kings was driven from Rome, the corn stood ripe for the sickle on the crown lands beside the river, but no one would eat the accursed grain, and it was flung into the river in such heaps that the water being low with the summer heat, it formed the nucleus of an island. The horse sacrifice was thus an old autumn custom, observed upon the king's cornfields at the end of the harvest. The tail and blood of the horse, as the chief parts of the corn spirit's representative, were taken to the king's house and kept there, just as in Germany the harvest cock is nailed on the gable or over the door of the farmhouse, and as the last sheaf, in the form of the maiden, is carried home and kept over the fireplace in the highlands of Scotland. Thus the blessing of the corn spirit was brought to the king's house and hearth, and, through them, to the community of which he was the head. Similarly, in the spring and autumn customs of northern Europe, the maypole is sometimes set up in front of the house of the mayor or burgomaster, and the last sheaf at harvest is brought to him as the head of the village. But while the tail and blood fell to the king, the neighbouring village of the Sabara, which no doubt once had a similar ceremony of its own, was gratified by being allowed to compete for the prize of the horse's head. The Mamilian Tower, to which the Saburans nailed the horse's head when they succeeded in carrying it off, appears to have been a peel tower, or keep, of the old Mamilian family, the magnates of the village. The ceremony thus performed on the king's fields, and at his house, on behalf of the whole town and of the neighbouring village, presupposes a time when each township performed a similar ceremony on its own fields. In the rural districts of Latium, the villages may have continued to observe the custom, each on its own land, long after the Roman hamlets had merged their separate harvest homes in the common celebration on the king's lands. There is no intrinsic improbability in the supposition that the sacred grove of Aricia, like the field of Mars at Rome, may have been the scene of a common harvest celebration, at which a horse was sacrificed with the same rude rites on behalf of the neighbouring villages. The horse would represent the fructifying spirit both of the tree and of the corn, for the two ideas melt into each other, as we see in customs like the Harvest May. End of chapter 49